Over 8 million in tax dollars funneled to China. Will the U.S. keep funding Chinese research? Dr. Fauci responds. Beijing bans Tesla drivers from entering a certain area. Some suspect the communist regime fears the American car maker can access its data. Elon Musk says he can balance his Tesla interests in China with his Twitter acquisition. On the other hand, a Chinese professional urges Beijing to destroy Musk's Starlink satellites. In one of China's biggest tech hubs, authorities give in to the demands of the people. That's after a massive protest demanding COVID-19 restrictions be eased. And another gas explosion strikes China. The accident left 23 people injured, and three of them with severe burns. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Will America's premier medical research agency keep sending tax dollars to China for research? A lawmaker asked Dr. Anthony Fauci about it. Here's how he responded. The National Institutes of Health, or NIH, has sent over 8 million tax dollars to fund research in China. Now a lawmaker is questioning Dr. Anthony Fauci whether that will stop. In a hearing, Senator Roger Marshall says among the nations considered top threats to the U.S. To my knowledge, only China is receiving U.S. research dollars. The CCP controls their scientists and controls the release of research results they work on. However, NIH grants policies requires that grantees to maintain supporting research records, which they cannot do when those records are under control of the Chinese Communist Party. When will you as director of NIAID stop funding research in China? Dr. Fauci is the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, one of the largest institutes of the NIH. He's also the chief medical advisor to President Biden. Here's his response to the question. Uh, we have at the NIH and in other agencies in the federal government had very productive, peer-reviewed, highly regarded research projects with our Chinese colleagues that have led to some major advances in biomedical research. So I don't think I'd be able to tell you that we are going to stop funding Chinese. He says the agency needs to have proper peer review when they do fund China, adding... I might point out that grants that go to foreign countries, including China, have State Department clearance. So anytime that we do fund anything in China or any other country, it has to go through a clearance with the State Department. Senator Marshall then questioned if the public has enough access to studies from a controversial nonprofit called the EcoHealth Alliance. But, but you would not deny that the research done through EcoHealth, that the records, the, the studies from there, that we still do not have access to them. Is that correct? Before we hear Fauci's response, here's some background. EcoHealth Alliance found itself at the center of controversy recently, which raised questions about the NIH's oversight over risky bio-research. Here's what happened. EcoHealth Alliance received grant dollars from the NIH. It used the money to do research with a lab in Wuhan called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The two experimented on how to make a virus spread more easily among humans. And the Wuhan lab later ended up in a massive debate on whether it had leaked the virus that caused the COVID-19 pandemic. 
As a result, the NIH was dragged into the controversy as it raised questions about whether it maintains enough oversight over studies that could be risky. Here's how Fauci responded to the question. We have, no, Senator Marshall, we have access to an extraordinary amount of information that has gone there. There is a question that people raise with things gone on there that we didn't have access to. But if you look at the grant, the $120,000 to $130,000 a year grant that was given from EcoHealth as a subaward in China to ask a very relevant, high priority question, we have received from them published literature with data that shows that they have done what they were given the grant for. Now, obviously, none of us know everything that's going on in China, but if the, if, if the question at hand is the rather small grant, peer-reviewed, high-priority grant that was given from ECO to China in a sub-award, we have a lot of good information that's in the public. EcoHealth Alliance obtained over $3 million from the NIH from 2014 to 2019, and a fifth of that went to the Wuhan lab. That's according to reports from news outlet The Intercept. China says it's concerned about electric car maker Tesla getting access to its data. And Tesla drivers in China may soon have to be careful where they go. From July 1st, the cars will be prohibited from entering the coastal district of Beidaihe, where a sensitive leader's meeting is due to take place soon. That's according to a local traffic police official. He didn't give a reason for the ban, but said it concerned national affairs. China appears to view the U.S.-based company's cars with some suspicion. Last year, Tesla cars were reportedly banned from entering military complexes out of concern their cameras could be used for spying. In recent weeks, the vehicles were also reportedly restricted in one city while Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping was visiting. Tesla cars feature an array of cameras to help with parking and other tasks. Company founder Elon Musk has always denied that they could be used to spy in China or anywhere else. Tesla has said that all data generated by the cars in China will be stored in the country. There's even more happening for billionaire businessman Elon Musk. Questions have come up about how he plans to balance Tesla's China interests with his new Twitter acquisition. What's more, some say free speech on social media could be a concern. Here's what Musk had to say in a recent interview. Tesla's CEO Elon Musk says he has no problem balancing China, Tesla and Twitter. He made the comment in a virtual interview during the Qatar Economic Forum in Doha on Tuesday. Musk told Bloomberg that he doesn't see issue balancing Tesla interest in Shanghai with his Twitter acquisition, saying, China does not uh, attempt to interfere with the uh, free speech of the, of the press in the U.S. Uh, as, as far as I know. I, I don't think this is going to be an issue. Musk also praised Chinese car companies, saying they're extremely competitive, hardworking and smart. A statement from Hong Kong-based media The South China Morning Post is raising concerns. The outlet reported in late May that China, quote, needs to be able to disable or destroy SpaceX's Starlink satellites if they threaten national security. That statement came from a peer-reviewed article in a Chinese journal called Modern Military Technology, published in April by author Zhen Yunzhen. Zhen is affiliated with the Beijing Institute of Tracking and Telecommunications. 
Starlink is a constellation of satellites that provide internet service across the globe. It's operated by Elon Musk's SpaceX. It now serves over 400,000 users worldwide. But the service's growing reach has become a source of concern for the Chinese Communist Party. That's because Starlink offers people inside China a way to avoid Beijing's internet censorship. Beijing has been working to dominate the computer server hardware market for decades. And more recently, monopolized 5G network equipment operations around the world. In the article, Zhen wrote, a combination of soft and hard kill methods should be adopted to make some Starlink satellites lose their functions and destroy the constellation's operating system. But does China's military, called the People's Liberation Army, have that capability? The short answer is that right now, China may not be able to shoot down enough of them to shut it down. But it does have the ability to damage large portions of this growing mega constellation. That's according to analysis from Rick Fisher, a senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Fisher lists several possibilities when it comes to a Chinese attack on Starlink. That's including Beijing's new space station and its potential laser or microwave weapons and satellite interceptors that could be launched before the end of this decade. Though Fisher added that even with those, Musk's SpaceX alone has the means to make the task a difficult one. COVID-19 restrictions eased Monday in one of China's biggest electronics hubs, Quinsen City. That's after protests over the weekend, demanding the local government resume public transit operations. With buses and subways largely at a standstill, many residents couldn't get to their jobs in the nearby city of Shanghai. NDD's Chenny Wu has the story. A protest broke out Saturday in the city of Qinshan. Residents demanding the resumption of commuting between the city and Shanghai. That's after the public transit system was shut down for three months under China's strict zero COVID policy. Qinshan borders Shanghai and many people work in one city and live in the other. A lot of people have homes they can't go back to and jobs they can't get to. Videos on social media show a large group of people shouting unblock and commute near a barricade. Police are deployed on the scene and some protesters are arrested. The next day, authorities agreed to a conditional reopening of commuting between the two cities for people who have permanent residence or a job in Quinshan. Commuters have to register for an electronic pass and have negative test results from within 24 hours. Authorities also require commuters to travel in a closed loop between their companies and their residences. And those who pass through medium to high-risk areas will have to quarantine for two weeks. Kunshan, as well as other cities near Shanghai, is home to many manufacturing companies, playing a key role in China's economy and the global supply chain. Notable products such as the Apple iPhone, Mac and iPad are assembled in the area, and it's also home to Tesla's Gigafactory. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Speaking of China, when Beijing says it wants to get rid of every last virus case in the nation, it means it. A single virus case has triggered mass virus testing in a partial lockdown in China's Shenzhen city. Authorities there mandated home isolation orders for several local communities. Shenzhen is the home of telecom gear companies Huawei and ZTE. Both of them were placed on U.S. trade blacklists over national security concerns. 
The city has also long been seen as a triumph for China's economic reforms. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping called it the miracle city when he visited in 2019. The city has some 18 million people and neighbors Hong Kong. In the last four decades, the manufacturing hub posted at least 20 percent of annual growth. Forecasting firm Oxford Economics predicted that the city would be the world's fastest growing city between 2020 and 2022. But China's virus-driven lockdowns seem to have caused major changes. Shenzhen's economic growth in the first quarter of this year plummeted to 2 percent, while its overseas shipments fell nearly 14 percent in March. Looking to one of Beijing's neighbors, another explosion has been set off in China, this time in the city of Tianjin. According to local media, a gas explosion occurred Tuesday afternoon local time. The accident injured 23 people, three of which suffered severe burns. The cause of the blast is still under investigation. The incident comes just days after a series of three blasts at a petrochemical plant in Shanghai over the weekend. Coming up, the Chinese Communist Party's leader approved an order allowing non-war army operations. What does it mean? We ask experts to find out. Learn more after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping has signed off on a new directive allowing non-war military operations. But what's the real purpose of the order? And does it hint at a future Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Three China experts break down what's happening. Xi Jinping recently signed a directive that allows for military operations other than war. The move evokes similarities to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which Russia described as a special military operation rather than a war. Many have assumed China's move is part of preparations to invade Taiwan. Some say the new directive may also be seeking legitimacy for future military operations. But author and China expert Gordon Chong told the China Insider that the party doesn't really need legitimacy. Well, China is going to do what it's going to do, law or no law. Um, the Communist Party is not restrained by law. It's not restrained by treaties. So, for instance, it's signed, ratified, and now violates the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it does it regularly. Recently, China has repeatedly stated that the Taiwan Strait is not part of international waters, but falls under China's territory. The country's defense minister even referred to a possible war over Taiwan as a civil war. Speaking on NTD's Chinese-language program Focus Talk, China affairs analyst Tang Jingyuan commented on the situation. The statement that the Taiwanese Strait isn't international waters is very typical of trying to confuse the concept or distort the connotation of international waters. According to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, the definition of at-sea territory is the 12 nautical mile zone from the baseline or low water line along the coast. This definition doesn't fit the Taiwan Strait, as the narrowest part of the strait is 70 nautical miles wide. The People's Liberation Army, people forget, is not a state army. It's a party army. It reports to the Central Military Commission of the Communist Party. 
China has stepped up its aggression in its nearby ocean areas, and the new order brings Putin's special military operation to the minds of many. Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine has continued for almost four months. Tong said the reason Russia declined to classify it as a war was to avoid having other countries or international organizations get involved. Declaring war will quickly turn into a world war. The whole situation will be out of control, so I think Xi Jinping signed off this thing in advance as he learned the lesson from Putin's experience. Experts recommend that nations get prepared for the possibility of future invasions. And that's what we have to be, is prepared to defend Taiwan and to defend other areas. We have to be prepared tonight. Experts also suggest that the new order could be targeting public opinion inside China. The order took effect from last Wednesday. Based on its timing, some speculate Xi Jinping is trying to enhance his military reputation and power ahead of China's largest annual Communist Party meeting, the CCP's 20th National Congress. Xi will be seeking a third term as leader at the meeting, slated for this fall. What's more, mass protests have erupted in China as residents stand up against ongoing pandemic lockdowns. China affairs analyst Zhao Pei believes that the new non-war directive might give Chinese authorities an excuse to suppress these demonstrations while armed. In the future, if Beijing and Shanghai, the cities home to tens of millions of people, need to impose large-scale lockdowns, you cannot enact these kinds of closures citywide or even nationwide. Because the people have not listened to you, then does it require more harsh measures to enforce? In that case, are sanctioning local armed police in the vicinity enough? It's not necessarily enough. In this situation, they need military occupation. This could actually be called a non-wartime military operation. During Xi Jinping and Putin's most recent phone call, she reportedly offered support for Russia's invasion. It remains to be seen whether China's new order will present a global threat. Next, we sat down with Nicholas Eftimiadis, a retired senior intelligence officer. He shared his views on the ongoing U.S.-China tech race and noted that Washington's decision to work with allies has proven significant in changing Beijing's behavior. Let's hear more. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. So recently in headlines a lot is this tech race between the world's two biggest superpowers, the U.S. and China. So to begin, how is the tech race different from other races happening in the economic world? Um, I'm not sure it's so different. I'm sure it's integrated with all those other races. There are a couple of elements that, that do make it unique. China was importing more in, in silicon chips, more in computer chips annually than they were in oil. Okay, so, so the need is dramatic, and that fits into developing and growing the Chinese economy. The technology, particularly the technology that they've, that they've stolen, is militarily very significant, and it allows them to leapfrog decades from, you know, if had they conducted the research on their own. So given you take those advances, which have economic implications, strengthen their economy, which have military implications, strengthen their military capabilities, and you apply them to what is a very aggressive foreign policy and national security policy, and it becomes very significant for not only the United States, but all the Asian, all the Southeast Asian nations 
Japan, Korea as well for Chinese dominance in the region. And on the note of semiconductors or microchips, the U.S. used to be quite dominant in this sector, producing about 40 percent of global output. Now it's dropped about 30 percent. So China's very keen in this sector, especially over tensions with Taiwan. Going forward, Nick, how do you see all this playing out? Uh, that's going to be interesting. The U.S. is playing catch up. Once again, they were very lazy about uh, sort of their investments and their drive and their strategy going forward. Uh, but they're going to have to be a little more aggressive in their investments into computer chips. Uh, China's made it very clear that they're investing in it. Uh, we also see cases like ASML and, um, you know, a number of other ones of their not only stealing chips, but the ability to reproduce the laser image into laser cut chips. So the U.S. is going to have to make investments. It's going to have to work with Taiwan, with Korea, with other places to make investments in the advancement of silicon chips. And it's going to have to be pretty aggressive in driving its own innovation to be able to reassert its lead in this area. Speaking of innovation, a recent report by the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation found that the U.S. used to always pioneer and be leading in terms of innovation, but then that innovation would be stolen by other countries, say in the past, the Soviets during the Cold War. So going forward, what steps can be taken to stem that risk? Well, certainly there are um, key areas of uh, production for su suppl um, supply, uh, supply chain security that would benefit the United States from moving him out of China. And I, I've been a big advocate for doing a Central American investment program as part of a, a part of critical infrastructure and to offer something like no-cost loans or offer um, uh, deals for companies to move production out of China, either back to the U.S., where it's economically feasible, if it's economically feasible, or if not, into Central America, where we have the opportunity to create tens of thousands of jobs, move the supply chains closer to home, and move them to countries that are not hostile to the United States. So there's a whole dimension of supply chain security that the United States isn't addressing. They produce reports on it, they discuss it, but there is no strategy Nothing coming from the Congress, nothing coming from the administration to address supply chain security, particularly in the area of critical infrastructure, it has to be done. Uh, other elements of, of the U.S. government response to China and to its uh, abuse of our industries have to also be aggressively taken on. I mean, the U.S. government has to respond, whether it's through trade or whether it's through physically working uh, more aggressively in the cybersecurity and response areas. And from the business perspective, there's the argument that, well, if one company doesn't do business in China, another one will and get those profits, thus undercutting this one. And so the president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, Dr. Robert Atkinson, has been arguing that one part of that is to bring production back to the U.S., but the second part is to work with allies, as in preventing anyone from buying illegitimate products from China. So, Nick, what's your take on these approaches? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great first step. I think move production back to the United States where you can, where it's everything works on a dollar in business, you know, on the cost efficiency of it, where it's cost efficient. And the government can certainly make incentives to bring business back, carrot and a stick, 
they can put forth incentives, positive and negative, to bring uh, production back to the United States, great for the U.S., where it's not cost efficient, move it to friendlier countries. And Nick, when it comes to Chinese companies, one massive advantage is the subsidies they get from the Chinese regime. So, for instance, Huawei has gotten subsidies to the tune of $75 billion over a 10 to 15 year period. It's according to investigations by The Wall Street Journal. So going forward, what can the U.S. do to level the playing field without kind of undercutting their own values? Well, look, uh, Huawei is a good example. Um, the U.S. went on a briefing campaign with allies and with countries all over the world and, you know, explaining uh, things that Huawei had done, a lot of closed-door sessions, uh, a lot of, you know, as, as we'll see in the not-too-distant future and months coming out, that uh, other countries identified things that, that Huawei had done as well. So it was that effort that slowed Huawei's advancement globally and I, I think that that is a and, and the U.S. did these goes didn't have a dog in the fight. It wasn't like the U.S. was selling competitive technology. We weren't. We, we you know, our, our industries weren't moving in that direction in Europe. But it was an issue of security for, you know, for all the allies globally. And, and they generally responded pretty well to it. So that type of uh, coordination, not just going on briefing expeditions, but coordination needs to be affected with allies, between allies. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.